This past week on Wednesday, so last week we had our uh, awakening retreat. Um, so right about now was whenever I was falling asleep uh, after just the, the coma and the, the, the fever dream that is awakening. It was a great, great experience, beautiful, but I was going right to bed uh, after the retreat was over last week. Um, but last Wednesday, we had, uh, after our evening mass, um, we had a Eucharistic procession around campus. Um, and it was really, it was a beautiful experience, really great. Um, we had about a third parishioners, about a third homeschool kids, and about a third college students. So it was a beautiful night. Um, so we take the Blessed Sacrament, we head out, and we just made a lap around the campus. Um, it was really beautiful, just the, the whole concept of just kind of consecrating the campus to our Lord. Uh, and it was just, a, it was really beautiful. There were two things um, that I did not expect to happen or that I wasn't planning for during the course of it. Um, the first thing, the first mistake that I made was once we were walking out the church, um, the altar servers that were helping us out, that were leading the way with the cross and the candles, were looking at me and just going like, what way do we go? Because I forgot to tell them the route. Um, so that was a lot of fun because during the course of it, it's like I'm holding Jesus and trying to like peekaboo some, uh, some directions around, like go right, go right, go, hold up Jesus, go right, you know, like it was just that kind of thing. But it was really awesome. Uh, we made our way. We kind of got lost at one point, found the cops again. It was great. Uh, Nichols PD was really helpful for, to us. Uh, just a beautiful, beautiful experience. The second thing um, that I, I expected, but it was cool to see, um, well, first of all, our, our, our campus is a commuter campus, so when you're walking around at night um, with guys in robes and candles and you're just kind of swinging incense, nobody's around. It kind of looks odd, especially if people just kind of walk up on it. Um, I saw there was a tweet with a picture of, like, what the heck is going on, you're right? We passed by uh, Ellender Hall, so it's one of, our, one of the dorms on campus just down the, down the way, uh, and as we were coming up, the, the, cop, the cop car had the lights on just to, like, to kind of make sure to direct traffic, um, and as we were coming up, I could see everybody that was in the lobby of the dorm just kind of on the window, like, what is going on? Expecting somebody to get arrested first, and then secondly, just seeing a bunch of dudes in robes walking down, and then it's like... They see the Blessed Sacrament, and they're like, ah, it's just the Catholics, they're weird, and they ran away, right? <laughs> but there was something about it that was interesting, because I was like, there's a curiosity that's attached to it, right? <laughs> that, like, they wanted to see what was going on, at least enough to kind of stop what they were doing. I don't know if they were studying, I don't know if they were goofing off, I don't know if they were playing video games, I don't know if they were gossiping, whatever. But just for a moment, right, what happened is, like, there was an interruption in the normal day-to-day, and they saw something, they stopped, and they all kind of stared and just wondering with a sense of curiosity, what is this, right? And I think it's interesting. Uh, I was listening to a podcast yesterday or, or the day before, and uh, a, a psychologist was on this podcast, and he made a comment. He said, um, he was giving like some like different principles to live by and what you need in a society, and one of the things he said, he said like a foundational principle to live by is be yourself on purpose, now, that can be taken many different ways and can kind of be like just like a little self-help hallmark kind of like psychology. And, but if, if we apply that question to our faith, if we apply that question or that statement to Catholicism, be yourself on purpose, Wednesday night was us being ourselves on purpose. Because what are we as a church? Our faith. What is unique about the Catholic faith that is different than every other faith in any other religion, in any Christian denomination? What is the one thing that's different? The Eucharist. The Eucharist. Period. 
Hard stop. Every other faith, every other faith that professes a God in heaven sees that God as distant, sees that God as apart from us in some way, shape, or form. But we as Catholics believe that that God is completely and totally accessible. He's imminent. He steps down to meet us. We are a Eucharistic church. We are a Eucharistic faith. We are a flesh faith. It's tangible. We can feel it. We taste it. Sad part is, is in our church, so many people question that central teaching. In 2015, there was, a, there was a study, and you may have heard this before, but in 2015, there was a study that was done. It was a Pew Research study. It was a survey of practicing Catholics. And the question that they asked was, do you believe in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, the true presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist? And 70% of Catholics said it's a symbol. 30% of people said, yes, that's Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I can only think of one thing ever that if you're doing it at a 30% clip, you're doing good, and that's hitting a baseball. <laughs> but in most things in life, in pretty much everything else in life, if you are doing it at a 30% clip, you are failing horribly. And that was in 2015. Just imagine after the dumpster fire of 2020, of COVID, of all the things that went on there, of people, of, of still not having roughly about 75% of our, of our Catholics back coming to church. We're full here on Sunday, and that's beautiful, but there's plenty of churches that aren't in our diocese and in our country. I remember in COVID times, uh, I was having a conversation with a group of priests, and one of the priests made a comment. He said something along the lines of, man, you know, COVID is going to be like this shadow. It's going to be this thing, this kind of curse that I think is just going to really hurt the church. We were worried that people were ever going to come back. And he was like, I really think COVID is the thing that's going to be to blame. And I, I said this analogy to him, and it's, I, I think it makes sense. I said, you know, in Hurricane Katrina, 30 years of coastal erosion happened in three days because of storm surge and wind and all this stuff, right? 30, 30 years worth of damage happened over a three-day window. If I'm not mistaken, in Hurricane Ida, 10 years happened in one day. Same kind of concept. I said the problem is, though, is that coastal erosion was happening before. It was a problem that was already in place. It was already going on, and all that happened was is a, the storm just sped up a process that was already happening. We've been having a problem in the church for a long time if 70% of Catholics don't believe in the true presence. And COVID just became a catalyst to speed up a process that was already going on. The U.S. bishops have even recognized this. They've been calling over the last couple of years for this Eucharistic revival this summer. They'll have a, there's going to be a Eucharistic Congress in, in Indianapolis, and they're going to fill a football stadium up, and everybody's going to be excited from all over the United States of coming together to celebrate the beauty of the Eucharist. We're going to have processions going on from all corners of the United States, and they got all this kind of planning going on. But if we don't believe in the sacrament, it doesn't matter. 
Because if 70% of Catholics still don't believe in the true presence of the Eucharist, then we have a massive problem on our hands. And we can't program our way out of that. So what I want to suggest to us, that if this is the most important faith, if this is the most important aspect of our faith, if this is the most important teaching of our faith, then I want to suggest to us, and I want, to, I want, to, I want us as a community, as a parish, over the next five weeks, let's walk through and find out where we get this. Where we get the Mass. Where do we get the Eucharist? Let's do a Bible study. And let's look at where it is and how it is and does God really care about any of this stuff? <clears throat> and if you trust me and we walk together as a community over the next five weeks, I can promise you your understanding of the Eucharist is going to change. Your understanding of coming to Mass is going to change. It won't be dependent on an exciting homily and a, and a charismatic priest like Father Mitch. It's going to, you're going to be even satisfied with somebody like me, right? Or anybody else. I promise you in five weeks, if we lean in, that our entire experience of the Mass can change. Because I don't know about you, but I, I know for me, it took until I was in seminary for somebody to break open the mystery of the Mass and say, look at the beauty. And ever since then, it doesn't matter if it's a daily Mass, it doesn't matter if it's a papal Mass, it's beautiful. <clears throat> so let's start with a very simple question. Does God care how we worship? Does God care about our worship, what it looks like? Does God care about worship? Well, we can go to one place very, very simply. The Ten Commandments, First Commandment. What is it? It says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not worship other gods besides me. I am the Lord your God. You shall not worship other gods besides me. It's on God's mind <laughs> from the very, very beginning of how he interacts with his people. From one of the first things that he tells his people on how to live, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but one of the very first things that comes out of his mouth when he's telling his people how to live is, I am the Lord your God. You shall not worship other gods besides me. Even in our gospel today, the interesting thing is, is that we read from Mark's gospel, the transfiguration. Now, the transfiguration's in all Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels. But the gospel that we just read, if you read Matthew's gospel with the, with the transfiguration, it's Matthew 17, 6. Right after Jesus is, is transfigured in front of James, John, and Peter, right after he has this moment, right after Peter says he wants to build a tent and all these kind of things, when God's voice, when the Father's voice says, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. We have the Father's voice, we have the Son who's being transfigured, and we have this cloud of smoke around them, this cloud that has engulfed them, the Holy Spirit. God's entire Godhead is present on the mountain, revealing himself to, the, to James, John, and Peter. And it says in Scripture that they fell flat on their face in front of Jesus. Now we might think they were knocked down. We might think that it was something like that, but that, that image, that, 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 that posture of falling flat on your face is a posture of worship. It's called prostration. They prostrated themselves before Jesus. 
And when they prostrated themselves before Jesus, the reason why we say that's the, it's the most powerful, the most reverent, reverent way to, to, to posture ourselves. Like, think about it this way. Right now, you're sitting down. Because the least important part of Mass is the homily. A little while ago, you were standing up when we read the gospel. Why? Because it's the word of God. It's the, it's the most reverent space that we have for any of the books of the Bible. We read from them all the time because they're about Jesus. And in a few minutes, when we get to the liturgy of the Eucharist, what we're going to do? Kneel. Because kneeling is more reverent than standing. Standing is more reverent than sitting. Well, prostration is more reverent than all of them. The lower I get, the more humble I am before God. And that's what Peter, James, and John are doing. On the mountain. They know innately how to worship. So what happens in the Old Testament is that God reveals to us repeatedly different things about himself. Right? He speaks to different people throughout the Old Testament. In the early part of the Old Testament, he's speaking to Adam and Eve. After that, he's speaking to, to the other, the, the other uh, patriarchs of the faith. He talks to Abraham today. Don't, don't, you know, don't kill the boy, all those kind of things. When we get into the book of Exodus is where God starts to not just talk to people, but he not start talking to individuals, but talking to whole people. Okay? This is really important. Because what God does is he starts to talk to Moses on behalf of the people of Israel, right? On behalf of the Israelites. Now, when you hear the name Moses, a certain generation think of Charlton Heston, right? <laughs> Let my people go, right? Another generation, my generation, might think of Tommy Pickles from the, from the Rugrats Passover special and with Tommy walking over saying, let my babies go, right, to Angelica, his, his, his cousin. And if you haven't seen that episode of Rugrats, you need to go watch it. That's your homework for tonight, all right? I love it too. It's awesome. So, but whenever we have this, right, this whole concept, even that, like Moses knowing, let my people go, let my people go. We might think when Moses is saying, let my people go, that he's saying, let us out of slavery, but he's not. If you've read the book of Exodus, what Moses is actually saying is, let my people go so that we can offer worship to God. Moses is not looking at Pharaoh saying, let my people go so that we can be free of you. But Moses is saying, let my people go so that we can offer worship, right worship to God. Let us go into the wilderness to offer worship, and Pharaoh wouldn't do it. So God sends the plagues. Now we'll get to that next week. We're going to go into that in detail. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be awesome. But God sends the plagues, and finally Pharaoh says, get out. And when he gets out, they, the Red Sea happens, right? Red Sea opens up. Israelite people walk through. Egyptians are chasing them. Israelites get through. Moses turns around, closes the Red Sea. Egyptians, Egyptians become fish food, right? The book of Exodus, according to Father J.D. You're welcome. But we continue. What, what happens is, is that they're then called to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai is the moment when God really starts to talk to his people. So Moses goes to Mount Sinai with the entire nation of Israel, with all of the Israelites in front of him. And he's invited up the mountain. Now, everybody else is down in camp, and they're just waiting to find out what's the next thing God's going to do. They're excited. They just watched all of these miracles, all of these things, all these crazy signs happen so that they could be free. 
And Moses goes up a mountain. And when Moses goes up a mountain in Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23, four chapters, God starts with the Ten Commandments and uses four chapters of just telling them how I want you to live. Starts with the Ten Commandments. And he looks at the people and he says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not have other gods besides me. And then he says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then he says, keep holy to Sabbath day. And on and on and on and on. He does all ten commandments. And then goes on for four chapters explaining how he wants them to live. And Moses is up on this mountain talking to God as if he's face to face with them in this cloud. And Moses comes down to the people and he tells them all that God has said. And this is the response of the people. When Moses came to the people and related all the words of the Lord, they all answered with one voice, we will do everything that the Lord has told us. So Moses comes down, tells them everything that Jesus, that, that, Jesus, that God just told them, right? And Moses tells them all of the things, all four chapters of how to live, and their response is, we will do everything that the Lord has told us. Say it with me. We will do everything that the Lord has told us. One more time. We will do everything that the Lord has told us. Now, parents, let me ask you a question. On your kid's birthday, when you just gave them all the presents, if you ask them, are you going to listen to me from now on, what's the first answer you're going to get? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely, right? And you know that that little terror is going to be bad tomorrow, right? That might just be my mom. But anyway, right? <laughs> like, you know that, hey, when you give them everything that they want, they are ready to say yes to whatever you want them to do, right? Well, watch what happens. Because Moses gets invited by God back up the mountain. And if in, three if in four chapters God tells them everything they need to know about how to live, everything they need to know about how he wants them to, to live their life according to his law, he spends the next seven telling them how he wants them to worship. He spends twice as long telling them how he wants them to worship. We think the moral law is the most important. God spends twice the amount of time on liturgical law, on how he wants them to worship. One of the, he, he talks about, he talks about what he wants an altar made out of. He talks about what kind of, what kind of, uh, 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 what kind of like sheets and stuff that they're going to use to pitch tents, right? He tells them everything. He uses measurements. He goes through all these kind of things. He goes so far as to say, you know that law I just gave you, the Ten Commandments, the tablets that I gave you? What I want you to do is I want you to put those tablets in a gold box because they're reverent. They're important to me. God's not bougie. He's just, he wants us to reverence what he reverences, right? So what he does is he says, build a gold box, and I want you to build this gold box. I want you to put the tablets in it, and when you put the tablets in it, I want you to put two adoring angels on top of it because that law is going to be my presence with you. And I want you to carry this box with you throughout the wilderness wherever I lead you. And when you do set up camp, I want you to set up camp and I want you to put a lamp outside where the box is so people know that my presence is with you at all times while you're in exile. Now, I don't know where we could possibly find a place that we would have a gold box with God's presence within it, a lamp to reveal that he's always present 
And if you go to some Catholic churches on either side of the tabernacle, you'll see that they have angels adoring. Because so much of our faith, we can sometimes think that it's 2,000 years old, that it goes back to Jesus, when in reality, it's 4,000 years old, y'all. And if we don't understand our Jewish background to a lot of this, we're going to miss what's really going on. But Moses is up on this mountain, and he's getting all of these directions, and he's finding out all this liturgical law, because God is saying, I have a particular way I want you to worship me. But while Moses is up there for 40 days, if you've seen the movie, if you've seen the shows, you know the people down are getting restless. This is what happens. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses is gone for 40 days, and they're wondering, where in the heck did he go? He left. He took off. It takes him a month and a half to start questioning, did God abandon us? After watching all these miraculous things that happened at his hand, after being set free by him, Aaron, who's, who's Moses' sidekick, he's like second in command. And Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold to their hand and fashioned with a graving tool and made a molten calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down and eat and drank and rose up to play. They just said, 40 days earlier, we will do everything that the Lord has told us. And it takes them a month and a half at most to abandon it. Now, I don't know about you, but I, a lot of times when I read Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, there's a lot of times that I can be really, really judgmental looking back. Nice. Dumb. Knuckleheads. Stupid. Right? Like, I can't believe that they would already fall short so quick. Don't they know? They didn't, right? But it's so easy sometimes to look back with, like, a sense of, like, judgment or pride and say, I'd have never done that. <laughs> How often, even though we're on this side of the new covenant, even though we have the blessed sacrament offered to us every time we come to Mass, available for us every day. We can go and pray before the Blessed Sacrament. How often do we turn our back and make an idol out of something else that isn't God? You know, every human being is made for worship. We are going to worship something. That something might be God. And if you're here at 7 p.m. on a Sunday, you know what? Chances are that, that, some, that something you worship is God and praise God for that. 
But so many of us, while on Sunday it might be easy, Monday, who knows what we're going to worship. Because sometimes it's a lot easier to worship comfort over the Lord. Or worship power or status over the Lord. To worship fitting in over the Lord. To worship lust and pleasure over the Lord. To worship the next beer over the Lord. The next website over the Lord. So often it's easy to worship these other things over the Lord. To give ourselves to these other things instead of to God. But who is it that determines how we worship? It's the Lord. Who is the end and the only one fitting of our worship? Certainly not a golden calf. Or one of the other million idols we make in our life. The only one fitting that deserves our worship is God. I'm going to end with this. I know a lot of times, and I'm tempted to do this sometimes, where when I'm like, as I'm praying or as I'm going through something like Lent or a retreat, that I kind of look at Jesus as like a buddy. <laughs> like he's my peer. He's my friend. We're just kind of walking this path together, right? Going through the week, and it's like, yeah, Lord, I, Jesus, I'm right there with you, yeah. And he's like, hey, I want you to go do this. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to do that. I got this other idea. And he's like, yeah, but I really want you to do this. And I'm like, yeah, well, look, I know you know it's cool, man. Like, that's your opinion. This is my opinion. It's cool. I'm going to do what I want. Yeah, that's good, right? Like, we're on the same level. And that is a lie. <laughs> God makes himself eternally accessible to us. God makes himself infinitely accessible to us. Like, Jesus steps down into time, into space, becomes one of us so that we can relate to him as a friend. But make no mistake about it, God is God and we are not. God is God and we are not. And it's only God that's deserving of our worship. As we come to Mass tonight, what are the false idols, what are those small things, what are those little golden calves of sorts that you find in your life that take your attention off of the Lord? And how is it that God wants to reveal himself and replace them? Not just replace them, let me check that, destroy them. <laughs> like eliminate them from your life <clears throat> so that it's only him that's do our worship. Tonight as we come to Mass, the Lord steps down again. Makes himself available to us again. May we not settle for worshiping anything other than the Lord. Anything other than a God who sees it so important that he wants to reveal his love to you and I. This is week one. We could continue to build on this over the next five weeks. But God is the one, and it's the most foundational thing that we can say, is God is the one that determines, that determines how we worship, and God is the only one that is worthy of our worship.